Welcome to the Cover Crop Strategies Podcast, brought to you by Montag Manufacturing. I'm McCain Vogel, Associate Editor at Cover Crop Strategies. In this episode, listen to a compilation of audio clips from the three most popular episodes of the podcast released in 2023. Starting us off at number three, we have Iowa farmer Dean Sponheim sharing best practices for aerial seeding cover crops. There's a huge amount of advantage for aerial application. We're going to go back and basically we try to think of some of the things that were the, we had challenges and most of them fall into this inconsistent sand category. And we'll talk about the problem with the inconsistent sand and some of the reasons why. One is the crop stage or the canopy. Uh, sometimes it's the applicator error. Uh, other times it's the weather or mother nature. Um, and the other thing is the crop is, that is, it's growing into or we're going to fly into. And then uh, it comes back to applicator error, maybe with the borders and field edge skips and overspreads. And sometimes the seed sizes. And the other thing would be the applicator schedule. In our particular area, we really don't get any planes available for our cover crop application. And this has been up to now and it might change in the future. They will have planes flying fungicide and insecticide on corn. And so I guess mainly corn at late. And they won't switch the planes over until they're done with that. And that usually runs some from uh, you know, maybe the first of August to the middle to late August. And that's about when we want to start. We're, we're looking at going and starting applying cover crops the last week of August, trying to hit that September 9th frame, as I showed you before on, in our area, that we have to have those specific species on by. So it's very tight. If that application of fungicide and, and insecticide goes later, we sometimes have less availability of the planes. But I think as cover crop continues to grow, I think the applicators know that they are, that's part of their business and it's going to be a large part of their business. And we're starting to see more planes available and sooner. So, I mean, we're even starting to see some planes available in the summertime for applying nitrogen for side dressing. And so I think what we're going to see is as this demand continues to increase, um, the supply of aircraft and equipment will also increase. So we maybe have a better time or more timely applications. So we'll start with inconsistent stands. And so a lot of you out there probably maybe why you're watching is because you're getting in the inconsistent stands. And some of the things that I'm going to talk about is why, some of the reasons why we see them. Uh, at least that's what we've seen in the past. And the, the picture on the left happens to be a spring picture of cereal rye that was aerial applied the fall before in standing soybeans. And as you can see in that picture, it is not a consistent stand. And um, I apologize. I, can't, I took it from a tractor. We were strip tilling in that, into that uh, field. And you can see spots and gaps where the rye isn't very thick or not at all. Now, that's still good enough to give us some soil health benefits, but it's not consistent enough to maybe um, pattern a fertilizer application to consistently or to try to eliminate weeds uh, or have weed suppression because in those areas where there's very little rye, there's not a lot of weed suppression. But it still does. Uh, we have a saying that a little bit of cover is better than no at all, none at all. So it's still a step in the right direction. 
The center one is showing, this is one of our farms, one of our fields, we do strip crop. So that means that we plant eight rows of corn and eight rows of beans, alternate them all the way across the field. And here we're planting actually the soybeans. We had, this one actually got stripped the way it looks. And if you look at the, the cover stand in the eight rows that are plant, we're planting right now in the beans, that, that stand is very, very poor. If you look at the, the strips that were soybeans and, and we planted corn into them, look at how lit, thick and lush that is. And that's basically due to the canopy of the crop stage. That those beans were farther along to more of the, the ideal time to be applying cover crops and, and have them survive. But on the corn side, the corn was not far enough along or mature enough. And when we applied, and we see this a lot, if the corn is not to the black layer stage, and we'll touch on that again, the corn stays green too long and there's no light interception at all down in there for the the cereal rye, we, will, we can have cereal rye get started just like it did on the bean side, which we know it did because the conditions weren't that much different, but they did not survive because they, they did not have the sun to start the photosynthesis. So that's a big issue, and I'm, I'm hoping to touch on that again uh, later in the presentation. The slide, the, the picture on the right-hand side is actual field. If you notice, there's very little rye or cover crop down the center of the row. And what happened is we had applied that one day. During the, during the night, we had about a five, we had a five inch rain in a very short period of time. I don't know, two, three hours, whatever it was. And what happened is we think it happened, because I wasn't out there, it was the middle of the night. But if you would happen to see where all that rye has been pushed to the, the corn rows, and I think what happened is the water actually got high enough in that soil, it didn't um, percolate fast enough. It stood the water and it floated the seed to the edges where it was caught in the, in the corn row. And we see that sometimes. Um, when we're laying this, uh, this seed on top and we get a, a large rain, it will move. And it's the same way with um, I'm spreading on top of standing water. And we'll get to that. This is where the weather, and I'm going to jump down a little bit to that rain and standing water. We've had times, well, the slides before when I talked about that one field had five inches of rain, we were not done spreading cover crops at that time. But when we had water, we woke up, we were on the way to the airport and we had water running out of some of these fields. And they were so anxious to get going because it was beautiful. It was calm and, and it was no fog and they wanted to get started. And I said, no, we can't do it because we got running water. We fly on these fields that have running water. We're gonna wash a lot of this seed away and we just won't have the benefit from it. So that's one of the disadvantages when we talk about weather on flying, but that's the water part is the only one is if we have standing water or running water, we do not seed. We try to keep them out, even though it's better conditions otherwise. The other big thing would be the wind speed. And as you can see, the heavier seed, we can go longer. Um, the maximum would be 15 miles an hour. And it, once we start getting to that sustained one, it's, it's uh, pretty nasty for the pilots, but also for trying to get the seed in the right place. I remember one time it was 15 miles an hour and I actually were out, was out watching the plane and the pilot was driving, flying over the road so the seed would hit the field. I don't know if all of you would know what kind of situation we have up in northern Iowa, but most roads are about uh, 40 feet wide. And then there's usually a 10 to 15 foot wide ditch. So these planes are flying 15 to 20 feet off target 
to try to hit the field. And that's not the best way to get a consistent stand. When you get to the lighter material or lighter cover crops like annual ryegrass and oats, a lot of times the pilots will, will uh, fly closer. When they're flying like zero rye, they're about 70 feet above the ground. So a lot of times the highline line, high line wires, the uh, only thing that really bothers them are evergreen trees that are up in that 90 to 100 feet high. But when you get into like the oats and the annual ryegrass, which is very light, a lot of times we're not, we've got one customer that flies annual ryegrass on every fall and we can't go over five mile an hour wind. Otherwise we're in trouble because you just cannot get that. The other thing is if there's gusty winds and it's not consistent, that's when you really get into problems with inconsistent stands. And then fog, of course, uh, some, some mornings we wake up with a lot of ground fog and we can't start applying until later in the morning and severe storms. Um, we do a pretty good job or they do a pretty good job of keeping tabs on radar and what's going on. I know we have flown right up until sometimes the last plane that comes in that, I mean, they got, it's raining hard and it's lightning and he said, man, I shouldn't have been out there that last load, but it does happen, but they, they try to keep a, ahead of that as well. This is kind of interesting. This isn't a big deal, but it's kind of curious and it's kind of fun to look at. We do have some of the product, and that's one of the pe- reasons why some people don't like the airplane, is they say, well, the canopy is going gonna, gonna to catch too much of the seed. Uh, yes, it, I don't think it's too much. It's very little. I've never gone to see uh, and taken numbers to see what the percentage is, but it does happen. It really does, and it's kind of interesting to watch it uh, uh, grow actually on a corn plant. And the last thing I think on this inconsistent stand is the borders. This is actually one of our um, strip crop fields. And the picture on the right is right along the field, uh, right along the road, excuse me. There is power lines there. I don't know why he didn't hit it. I, you know, we have discussions with our pilots every year. Uh, we want him to go all the way to the fence or all the way to the ditch, but not overseed into the neighbors. You know how that is. I mean, that's, we're only picky. We want a, the best job that we can get, but, it's kind of hard to do when you're flying 140 miles an hour and trying to get things in the right place, uh, especially turning on and off on the headlands when they are turning it on and off. We have come to the uh, conclusion that we are doing two passes on every headland field where they're turning the, the, the spreaders on and off. But as you can see, the strip, the beans, the second bean strip from the road on the left here has a perfect stand. And that's what I mean about having a lawn right behind when you combine. This is probably about a week after we harvested soybeans. And this is what it would normally look like on the right-hand side. But look at how nice and lush and green that is on the left. That's what we want. When I talk about seed size, um, there's a couple things that go on. And this can happen with the drill as well. I'll talk about the separating. When you're trying to blend or make a mix and you're going from like an oat, which is a 15,000 seeds per pound, large, lighter, a, link, a long, long kernel, and you, and you mix something like camelina, which you can barely see because it's about 500, I mean, we get up to half a million seeds per pound. It's very, very small. When we get that in a bag, a lot of times it's leaking out of the, out of the stitching because the stitching, you can't get close enough to keep that kind of product inside. But when you have that, sometimes there's some settling in the plane and also when you're moving it with trucks or with their tenders, but the biggest thing is spreading it. Uh, with a grain drill, you don't have to worry about that because you're still spreading it in a certain area. I mean, you're still putting it in, the, in those rows or whatever. But with airplanes, it does have a different spread pattern. And sometimes that 
you will start seeing the streaking. Not a lot, but you will see some, especially if you're going like with a, especially with an oat. If you're putting an oat in with that and you're going with one of these other, uh, like a rapeseed or a radish or a, a turnip even, the seed size is heavier, so it flies farther or the oats will not fan out quite as far. When you start using these particular brassicas or broadleaves or whatever, or even sometimes legumes, the rye is your best choice because the rye is a little bit heavier. It's got a little bit different shape, but it still seems to apply and, and spread out very similar to these. Um, but that's, that's what we're talking about with inconsistent stands and seed sizes. We're going to jump now to seeding rates. And the first thing that you have to know is what's, what's your goal with the cover crops? Are you going to use it just for a cover crop? Are you going to use it for grazing? Are you going to use it for forage? Are you going to use it for weed suppression? And what, what, st- what rate of weed suppression? Do you just want uh, you know, to eliminate one pass or you want to eliminate all application of herbicides altogether? I, I spoke at a meeting in uh, Minnesota and they were talking about, they were applying cereal and they had to have it. And this was their, um, not recommendation, but that was what they had to do was 96 pounds of cereal rye applied by the plain PLS, which would be pure live seed. And in that case, they were putting on between 105 to 110 pounds of cereal rye, depending on what the germ is and what the, what the um, purity was. In Iowa, as long as it meets 85% germ, these are the recommended rates. Now, I think maybe in Iowa we went a little too far on making it so easy, which I love but I think the rates may be a little bit um, low in certain instances. And if you look on the left-hand side, our recommendations for cover crops uh, for the winter hardy grasses, which would be the triticale wheat or rye, then we're looking at 55 to 60 pounds of the plane. Now, sometimes we still say 45 pounds is okay with a drill, depending on what you want out of it. And on the oats, uh, we stay with a the recommendation. They, they did bring that down as well. I think when we first started doing it, we were used to be PLS as well when we first started applying in the you know, 2012 through, I don't even remember when this switch, 16 or 17, but that 60 pounds of oats seemed to be pretty good. That's a lot of oats. That's two bushels. Um, 60, you know, 64 pounds would be two bushels. And then the last one would be, and then when we figure our mixes, I, I want to point that out a little bit is let's say we want a pound of rapeseed. So a pound, the full rate would be three pounds or in an airplane would be four pounds. So if we put a pound of rape on, we can reduce our CRI or oats by a fourth, by 25%. And as long as we stay with a total of 100% between the two products, then we're good. So it has made it very, very easy. Uh, When you start working, and maybe some of you are from Minnesota or our other states are using PLS, um, just make sure you talk to your local supplier and, and make sure you're applying the right amount of seed to reach that PLS that's required. On the weed side, well, weed control side, we do have a partial, we have many customers who are putting on like 50, 70 pounds of cereal rye with the plane. And then that's what they do is they plant into it green. And then um, they don't terminate for a couple, three weeks after it comes up. And they just apply a post, and that's all they do. So they go from a pre, uh, two passes with a pre and a post, they go just to a post. Now, 
Our goal in our farming operation is we're going to go strictly no herbicides. So we're going to use crimper roller and we want to, so we're going to be putting 140 to 150 to 200 pounds of cereal rye on per acre to help control our, our weeds. So it all depends on what you want to accomplish. Know your goal, know what you want to accomplish in the end, and then go with the different rates and the different products. These are some of, the, of our mixes that we've been using. The first one, the 50 pounds of cereal rye and the pound of rapeseed is a, probably our standard for a government two-species mix. We've seen rape actually over winter, winter a little bit, and we still continue to be able to, to control it with uh, glyphosate, even though in the literature it says we should probably use something else like a growth inhibitor or a regulator like a 240 or something on it. We haven't seen that problem. We also do... Uh, 50 to 60 pounds of rye with a couple pounds of radish. You know, there was, a, there was always the fads where they, everybody thinks they should have radishes. But I think that's kind of slowed down and we've gone back to more of the rapeseed. Our newest one and is getting a lot of traction is winter camelina because that's one that will, will overwinter and will give us those um, advantages of the broadleaf in there as well as just the cereal rye in the spring. It's really new to us. We applied it once in 2020, and I think we have probably five customers or five producers that we put Camelin in, in this fall just to see what we can get out of it and see what kind of growth. Uh, I know my son applied it late uh, with a drill, and the, the rye just came up and just started turning green, and the Camelin was right behind it. So it looks like it's going to be able to establish in colder so uh, soils, and get going just as fast as cereal rye. Now I have to apologize. This, I don't know why we got this one in where it says non-winter hardy mixes and we have cereal rye and oats, but this is one that we really have, have found. And even if you're not going to graze, um, this has become a very popular mix for us because we get much more growth in the fall from the oats. And then we have this great growth of the rye in the spring. So it's accomplishing a lot more in the fall than we normally would get just from the rye. And of course, whenever we, add, we, add, whenever we add one more species, the oats really has a great um, host of organisms that it attracts in the soil, uh, even more so than the rye. But the rye has a lilypathic effect of small seeded grass or broadleaves to control our weeds in the spring. So they both do a very, they really complement each other and what we're trying to accomplish. You have people that will do, um, especially the first timers of cover crops. And we'll talk about that, I think, in, in the next slide or two. But oats is very, it's not overwintering. So we, the farmers don't have to worry about uh, terminating in the spring, especially ahead of corn. And the radish is the same way. So that's, that's really popular for our first time users. And in our grazing mixes, this depends on what you want out of it. And we've got some really crazy things that we do. The cereal rye and oats is awesome, just up the rates. If you want to add something in like the kale and turnips, cows just love that. Uh, it gets to be a lot of leafy material, but I would really caution you to try and do not fly that into standing beans. <laughs> We have had, we've got good luck with flying oats in the standing beans, and we get into a year where the beans have matured and it's too wet to harvest, and then that rye continues to grow and grow. It's going to go to try to make um, seed. 
So it gets to be massive, 12, 18 inches tall, and you're out there with beans. We do, we have had a couple instances where it starts plugging sieves with all that moisture. But if you were to add kale and turnips into that mix at that type of situation, uh, I would not want to have the phone call. So, but that works good in the corn. If you can get, if you put it on and get a rain and make sure the corn is far enough along. Okay, to get started, we always said we have this easy, what we call five step process. For those that don't want to spend a lot of money on equipment, uh, don't want to change too many things, especially get the seeding equipment for cover crops, it's real simple to start. And maybe you might be a little scared of rye head of corn. In our first year, so let's, let's say in 2022 here, now you have a soybean field and you're going to go to corn in 23. This fall, apply the 55 pounds, um, excuse me, I'm backwards, into corn stalks, excuse me, okay? I don't know what I was thinking about. But into the standing corn, put 55 pounds on with the, air, with the airplane in that standing corn. And then next spring, 2023, you no-till beans into that rye. Now, I'm not saying you have to plant green. If you're first time, go ahead and terminate as soon as you can in the spring so you don't have to worry about so much uh, competition or whatever you might think is the problem with Sierra, which I don't have any problem because everything we plant on our farms are no-till into green rye, corn, and beans. So then the third step would be after those beans are growing and in the fall of that bean crop, then seed, aerial seed, about 60 pounds of oats in that being field at the time of um, leaf drop, just before that. And the following spring, if you're a little concerned about that, you won't have the oats there. You can actually even work the ground, which I don't recommend. I would recommend no-tilling the corn in the next spring and then start the process over. And then repeat it until you're so comfortable that you're also planting the rye in the beans going ahead of corn. And then you can just progress from there. But that's our our five-step easy plan of getting started with cover crops and working towards no-till. So we're getting close to ending this. So we're going to start, we're going to land on some keys to success. And the first one is always, you must have a goal or a plan in mind and how you want to do this. What do you, what do you want out of this? What's, what's your goal of the cover crop? And don't get me wrong. When I first started my goal for the cover crop, was to sequester nutrients, especially nitrogen. That's the only reason because I'm on ground that's got less than 2% slope. I don't need it for erosion purposes, but there are many of you out there that the erosion piece is big. It might be the first reason why you want to do the, go to cover crops. But please get, and it can change. Um, from the time when I said it was for my nutrient sequestering, now it's to develop soil health. It's actually to... Um, not only sequester my nitrogen, which I thought I was only going to do, I want it's it's sequestering my phosphorus and potassium, my sulfur, all those great ingredients that we need to grow crops. And it's just my goal has changed from the first time I started it. So when you get your goal set, and then you can talk about seeding rates, the species you want, and the application method. The the next thing is very very important when you are. When you've got your plan of application and it's going to be aerial application, you have to know when you should be putting it on. And in corn, 
we recommend that the corn is at black layer. That means that the, leaves, the lower leaves are starting to senesce. It's starting, it's um, maybe a lot of those leaves are senescing, I should say. So it's opening up the canopy so we get that sun in, sunlight in there to, continue, to get that cover crop to survive. And as I told, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, it's very important to have sun hit that rye or whatever else you might have to get it started. We normally will get it started if we have some rain with it, but um, the sunlight is key. And soybeans is another thing we recommend just for leaf drop. But <laughs> to make this all work with, a, with the timing of the applicator when you can get them there, and when this is all going to happen, and then the government regulations and their time schedule, sometimes we have gotten to the point where September 9th, our corn is not black layered yet, where our beans are not ready to start dropping leaves yet. And we have tried to talk to the NRCS office to give us a little bit of leeway to be able to adjust those application times. Uh, sometimes they will extend them and sometimes they won't. So just keep that in mind. And the other thing is to find an experienced applicator. We've been very fortunate to work with the same operation or applicator since the very beginning in 2012. It has changed names. It has been sold to a larger company, but by and by, most of the workers are still there and a lot of the pilots are the same. So we kind of know how things go and we want uh, their expectations of us and our expectations of them are already known and we've worked through that. The other thing is when you find the applicators, make sure you are calibrated um, from the very beginning and keep tabs on it. Um, it can change. Your, your seed size can change. Your bulk density will change. All that stuff can change in, within loads. And to tell you the truth, in the last couple of years, we probably have been less than a half a percent off of what we're, our goal was for applications. So when you talk about that many acres, it's, it's, it's really great that we can get that close. I also plan around weather forecasts. Of course, we try to, and this is a great thing. We have customers that call us and say, hey, it's supposed to rain tomorrow. Can we get that plant flown on today? And of course that doesn't always happen, uh, but we do look at the weather forecasts. And if it's extremely dry, we try to hold off until we see a front that's gonna be coming. And we try to get, say it takes us five days to apply, we'll try to get as much as we can done before that night. Coming in at number two is an episode featuring Beaver Dam Wisconsin grower Jeff Gaska as he talks about the importance of grazing to complete the holy grail of soil health principles. So I grew up on a farm in southwest Dodge County, Wisconsin. Basically, we started from nothing. It was uh, the farm was purchased by my parents um, after we moved up from Chicago. And my two older brothers kind of convinced my dad to get trying some farming. And so they started when I was pretty young. But I, I remember sitting in the tractor as we were moldboard plowing all of our fields and planting corn on corn. Um, back in the mid 70s, that would have been um, early 80s. And then, you know, slowly making that transition from moldboard plowing to chisel plowing and then adding soybeans into the rotation and then adding winter wheat, some winter wheat into the rotation and then going from conventional tillage to uh, more conservation tillage with the um, chisel plow. And then to really starting to look at um, 
uh, no-till as an option, probably in the early 90s, I would say, is when we started to look at that. And then through the 90s, we kind of uh, practiced with some different options. We had a, a Rawson unit on the front of our corn planter that basically was strip tilling and planting at the same time. Um, that was the early adoption of strip till, I think. Three coulters uh, on a um, toolbar, right, like I said, right in front of our corn planter. And kind of learned from that that we could do something along those lines, you know, that tillage wasn't that necessary. Um, we switched, that was for corn. We switched to a, a no-till drill then for our soybeans and our winter wheat. And um, as we played around with the um, Rawson unit, found some issues with it where, you know, it was doing a great job working up that soil in front of the corn planter, but it was wet soil. Cause the, you know, you went from a, a field that hadn't been nothing done to it to, tilling about four or five inches deep in an eight inch strip, but it was bringing up a lot of moisture. And so that was kind of causing some issues with the corn planter following right behind. And so we decided to take off the Rawson unit and try to go straight no-till and that worked quite well. Um, then we started to go back and look at strip tilling as an option, just knowing what that Rawson unit did for our corn planter and how the, how it worked, you know, it, it was a great idea, just you needed some time for that soil to dry out in between the planting. So we, my brother and I built our own strip till machine from a um, cultivator uh, toolbar, kind of looking at all the designs that were out there and none of them did everything we wanted. Uh, each one had its good points and points that we weren't really happy with. And so we kind of decided just to look at all those and build our own unit. We built this, a 12 row strip till unit and started playing around with that a little bit and um, found that it worked, but we were a little short on horsepower with our tractor. And so then we started weighing the option, do, we, do you buy another tractor to, to make that work? Um, we went back then to just straight no tilling and giving that a try. And um, we're still not sure what, is the best option. We we might try and rebuild the strip till unit. Um, I think we want to get away from the shank that we have on there to going back to something like what the Rawson unit was with just um, coulters and working up three or four inches of soil deep instead of a six or seven inch deep. Because uh, then you're kind of going back to tillage, even though you're not doing it field wide, you're still doing some tillage. Um, so we're playing around with that yet, but we've had good luck with just going on the, um, the straight no-till with the corn planter, still doing beans and wheat with um, a no-till drill and having good success with that. Um, through that conversion and, and the changes in the farm, we added beef cattle to our operation. So we've got a, a herd of about 35 beef cow calf pairs. Uh, we raise Simmental cattle and do some crossbreeding with Red Angus on them and really trying to integrate the cattle into the whole farming operation. And um, kind of one of the ideas I have them trying to work with and, and get the cattle out on that ground, you know, it, everyone's always raising grain to feed the cattle to make the cattle operation work. I kind of want to switch that around and raise cattle so that we can feed the grain as well and, and kind of get that holy grail of soil health where we can get the livestock in on the, the farm 
and and make that work. And we're we're making progress with that. Um, the big issue, of course, fencing and water and things like that for the cattle if they're out on the crop fields and trying to get all that figured out. But um, really want to try and integrate if the cattle in. And so you know, one of the first steps to doing that was to get to go to a, a corn beans winter wheat rotation on all of our acres. So we, we run about 450 acres total. Um, a little more than half of that is owned and then some is rented. And basically we've gone to a third, a third, a third with our crop rotation. And um, that's setting us up to be able to utilize that land better for the cattle. And we can get cattle out there two out of three years then. So after we take off the winter wheat, we plant cover crops, we can graze cattle. Then once the cattle are pulled off of that, that field will go into corn. When we harvest the corn, we've got corn stubble for the cattle and corn or the fodder for the cattle to graze on in the fall. And then the only year we can't put cattle on is when we go to soybeans, from soybeans to winter wheat. Um, but again, trying to get the cattle out there two out of three years, utilizing that. Um, We've also gone to um, some rotational grazing for our cattle. So during the summer months, um, we used to just have a couple of real small pastures and we would graze it. It looked like a golf course, you know, constant grazing out there, just a bluegrass pasture and realized that that wasn't sustainable and it wasn't real beneficial to the pasture and to the cattle. So we've taken some cropland out of production, uh, fields that were, you know, would go from steep, uh, kind of rocky knolls down to wetlands and water and really inconsistent yielding for our crop production. And we put those into uh, permanent pasture now and we're putting up fencing for that and doing rotational grazing and at like a daily move with the livestock and hoping that that can get us, the cattle can be out on that from the middle of May till September or the 1st of October. And then from there we can um, put them out on the, the winter wheat stubble, which would be planted to cover crops, and then onto the uh, corn stubble. And, you know, trying to extend that grazing period, you know, from May, what would have been May to September or early October to hopefully May through the end of the year, you know, and get to January. Then we only have to feed our cattle January through May. And then, you know, and the goal ultimately would be to really cut that even shorter and um, and really try and get the cattle to utilize the crop ground and our rotational grazing areas through maybe stockpiling or something like that. So that's kind of the the story, I guess, um, you know, where we came from and kind of where we're trying to head it to and really be able to utilize all of our acres all of the time. And uh try and improve our soil health and, you know, save money by not tilling and, and um, get a better crop of grain off of it, as well as a better crop of cattle. So uh, I want to kind of back up in your timeline just a little bit. You guys sort of made a conscious decision then to add livestock to the production uh, to kind of complement the no-till farming you were doing. Is that right? Yes. So we had, we had raised cattle for, Quite a few years before we integrated them into the the cropping part. I mean, like I said, we had we had a few pastures that we couldn't. Um, they were too steep to farm, um, too wet to farm, and they made great permanent pasture. 
but it was only, you know, maybe 15 acres and it wasn't enough to sustain the cattle. And like I said, it was mostly bluegrass pasture and it just wasn't working for the cattle operation. So we took a look at that is either get rid of the cattle and just kind of forget about it or make some changes with the farm to include the cattle more. And so, yeah, that was a, you know, it was a conscious decision to try and integrate them more into the farming operation. And what we noticed as we started to do that, um, we were getting better yields, you know, on our corn, on our soybeans, um, especially the soybeans, noticing after we graze cattle on corn stalks in the fall, um, those fields that we planted to um, soybeans always were our best yielding soybeans. And so it kind of made you start to think a little bit that maybe there was some benefit to that. And um, from there, it just made sense to really try and get them out on as many acres as we could. Yeah, that's really interesting. I know uh, I recently read an article that was kind of discussing uh, like four or five main things that that really increase soil health and, and kind of like you were saying that holy grail. Um, and it was sort of arguing the point that, you know, a lot of farmers will come around to no-till, they'll, they'll come around to the cover crops, but it's oftentimes the livestock or the grazing that is either just harder to implement if you're not already doing it, or just something that a lot of farmers aren't necessarily sold on is going to, you know, help. So, but it, it's interesting to hear kind of your opinion on that and, and that you do think it, it's been making a big difference on the yield and, and on the soil health. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, we've got, we've had three crop fields that have easy access to our pasture. So we've been able to get the cattle out there probably for the last, um, probably 15 or 20 years have had some grazing on it. Usually it was after corn stalks. Um, but, you know, I, after we had done that, you know, for 20 years and we're kind of looking at those fields and I said, well, let's, let's look at the soil sampling on those fields. And we went back and looked at fertility levels and every one of those fields, soil fertility is going up. You know, the, the P, the K, we're adding less, um, you know, as far as pH, it seems to be pretty nicely balanced. Um, and it just, it was interesting to actually see that happening where all my other fields were stable. You know, we weren't mining the fields or the soil, but those fields in particular, you know, kept going up for us. And so, you know, you, you don't put the two, two and two together right away until you really start looking at that. And, and seeing that made me really realize that, you know, again, not only seeing the yield in the soybeans going up, but also seeing the fertility levels of those fields going up um, without having, with putting on, we were doing the same fertilization, you know, with P and K on those fields as we were all our other fields. And most of our other ones were just maintaining, um, whereas these were going up. And the, really the only difference was the cattle on them. So, uh, what, a couple of weeks ago now, I think was when I met you at the, the Dodge County Soil Health event. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a couple of minutes. But uh, I want to go back to sort of some of the things that you discussed there. I know you uh, mentioned, I believe there was um, the 60 inch row corn mm -hmm. that you guys were were starting with. Is there sort of an update on that at all or how that worked out for you guys? I was just curious. Yep. So um, one of the things that we were really looking at, you know, again, being able to get the cattle out on the crop ground and get more benefit for the cattle. Um, one of our ideas was to try the 60 inch row corn. 
and then um, interseeding that with cover crops so that we could have more biomass for the cattle once we harvested the corn and give them more opportunity to graze and increase our grazing period in the fall. You know, instead of just going out there and having them forage through the, the corn fodder, we, you know, we're hoping to get some good cover crops with some better nutrient value and, and biomass out there. So it's been a two-step process so far. We're going into the third step of that this coming year, but I did it. I started by just doing a test plot with 60 inch row corn. And we'd always done 30 inch rows. We shut off every other row on the corn planter. And I did some replicated trials with that. And we found this would have been in 2021. We found that the yield difference between the 60 inch row corn and the 30 inch row corn was negligible. Um, two to three bushels, I think we came out with. Um, I think if I remember right, the the 30 inch row corn did about 220 bushels, 222 bushels per acre, and the 60 inch row corn was about 219 bushels. So three bushel difference. That was without any cover crops. So, so it was just testing that. And um, what we did with the 60 inch row corn is um, we basically doubled the population in the rows. So we were still planting on a per acre basis 35,000 seeds per acre, like we did in the 30 inch rows, but because you're skipping every other row, we had to put those seeds in the rows that we were planting. So we were at about um, 70,000 seeds in row in the 60 inch row corn. Um, when in 2022, then we tried replicating that, but then we put in cover crops, um, interseeding cover crops in between. And what we noticed is, we did take a bigger hit on the pot, or on the yield on the corn in the 60 inch row corn. Um, we did two things kind of not necessarily by mistake, but I was, as we were doing the 60 inch row corn, I went as we were at 70,000. I was talking to some people, they thought to really get a better yield out of that 60 inch row corn, we had to push the population higher. And so I went up to 80,000 seeds in row and we put cover crops in. So as far as a real tried and true study, we changed two things, not the best idea, but we figured we're gonna just try this. It, it's not a, it's not, this isn't meant to be in some publication or anything. It's just what we wanted to see. Um, so we did lose some yield on the corn in 2022. Um, pr probably, a, a, I really feel a lot of it was because of the population increase. Um, when we started looking at that corn as it was coming up and as it was maturing, it was a solid stand of corn. I mean, it was inches between each plant. And what we had noticed is that there were corn plants in the row that were not producing a, a cob. And so we really feel that we probably stressed that corn too much and kept some population. The population was too high. We ended up interfering with the corn plant growing. And so all those corn plants that didn't produce a cob were basically weeds in the in the row and took away from our yield. Um, the interseeding, we did a, a, a mix of, it was about a 16 or 17 species mix with brassicas and um, some grasses, oats and um, rye barley and um, I think a little bit of clover in there too, a couple species of clover. Um, what we noticed is that the, 
grasses and the clover did very little in as far as growth. And we ended up with a, a stand that was almost all brassica in the end. Um, and the brassicas, you know, they're great for grazing. There's a lot of biomass, but they also take up a lot of nitrogen as they're growing, uh, you know, any of the radishes or the kales or things like that. Took up, probably took up some of the nitrogen from the corn. And so I have a feeling that's what kind of dinged our yield a little bit as well. So in 2022, the difference between the two yields was we were at about 209 bushels per acre in the 30 inch row. And we were down to about 178 bushels in the 60 inch row with covers. So we had a, I would say a significant decrease in yield. Um, by going to the 60 inch row with that planting population and with the covers in between. And so again, we're learning as we go, trying to figure out what's working and what's not working. So what we did is we looked um, with the um, UW extension person, Will Fullwider from Dodge County. We looked at the economics of doing that and trying to see we knew we took a yield hit, but could that yield hit in corn be made up with additional grazing in the cattle and gain, maybe weight gain in the cattle? And when we penciled out all the numbers looking at the biomass and the loss in yield, we came up with it did not. Um, the loss in yield was greater than what we could make up by um, having the cattle out there for we figured we could probably get another 15 to 20 days of grazing out there by putting the cover crops in and um, it didn't work out that well. So it told us a couple of things. One, we need to work on that 60 inch row corn and trying to get that yield back up so that the yield hit isn't as great. Cause if we can get that close to what I would be getting if I planted 30 inch row corn, then the opportunity to gain from grazing those cattle increases significantly we have the potential, I think, to not only keep the cattle off of hay for a longer period of time in the winter, but also maybe gain weight on those cattle and um, put them into winter in a better condition. So what we're doing now in 2023 is we're going to do two different trials. One is going to look specifically at planting population of corn in 60 inch rows. And we're going to look at we're going to go up 10,000 seeds per acre um, from about, I think we're going to start at about 50,000, do 50, 60, and 70,000 um, seeds per acre and replicated trial with that. And then on a separate field, we're going to do um, three different mixes in our cover crop mix. And one is going to be uh, a more of a, a grass mix, grass with clover mix. One is going to be a mix of grasses and brassica, and one is going to be almost a straight brassica mix. And then in the end, what we're going to look at, one, does it affect the yield of the corn? Does one of those affect the yield of the corn more or less? And two, what do we get for biomass? Because um, that's ultimately what we want is biomass for the cattle to be feeding in those um, corn stalks after we harvest. So we're going to do some replicated trials on that this year and see if we can't learn a little bit more about how to tweak the system and get a better um, better gain from the cattle and a better um, yield from the corn on those. So we're looking forward to that and pretty excited about giving those a try and kind of trying again to figure out what what are we missing there. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think, uh, as you said, I mean, as long as you're 
kind of continuing to learn things and you know it's okay to obviously make some mistakes as long as you're kind of taking that info and and learning and especially also sharing it with others so they can kind of learn from it too we'll be back to reveal the number one most listened to episode of the podcast in just a moment but first i'd like to thank our sponsor montag manufacturing for supporting today's podcast montag precision metering equipment is helping producers achieve their yield goals while saving on seed and input costs. For establishing cover crops, Montag's family of seed platform equipment adapts to a variety of major brand delivery systems that will conserve seed and nutrients along with soil and water. Explore new options for your production and conservation goals with your Montag dealer. Visit MontagMFG.com or call Montag at 712-517-2775. And now, it's time to reveal the number one most listened to episode of the Cover Crop Strategies podcast for the year 2023. The most popular episode features Scott Healy of Hartford, South Dakota, as he discusses his experience using a manure drag line to terminate cover crops. So, my name is Scott Healy. Um, I'm from southeastern South Dakota around Sioux Falls. The operation that I work on is a multi-farm dairy operation. Farms that we grow crops for are somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, 1,200 to 3,200 cows per site. We've been doing cover crops behind basically corn silage here for going on... Oh, Lynn's been doing it for probably 10 to 12 years, and I've been helping him for the last three or four. And in the last three, four years, we our main crop has been rye with some sort of a brassica mixed in. Uh, this last fall we did, we switched it up with the price of glyphosate and Termination concerns, we switched to a oats barley mix with a brassica this last fall. So that's kind of what we're doing. So how many uh, total acres do you think you're cover cropping per year? It depends on year, on year to year, but I mean, in the last three, four years, we've probably averaged somewhere in that 2,500 to 3,000 acres of cover crop in the fall. And then how are you uh, planting the cover crop in the fall? Uh, with a either a no-till drill or an air seeder. What types of tillage are you using um, for the corn silage? Basically, it gets uh, drag-lined with a manure applicator in the fall or in the spring. And then we're either following that with a field cultivator or a vertical till. And then we do have a few acres that we've been no-tilling, but our manure applicator just leaves too much disturbance in the field to really get a good, good uh, smooth planter pass. So we got to knock them ridges down somehow. Um, and then, so you said this year new was the oats, adding the oats instead of the cereal rye for the cover crop. Correct. What uh, do you think about the results of doing that compared to the cereal rye? I mean, we had a pretty decent fall temperature-wise, but we were dry again. And so the oats 
and the barley kind of struggled to get out of the ground. Uh, the first probably 500 acres that we planted got half to three quarters of an inch of rain on it. And that looks pretty good. The stuff that was planted a week later, just never, never really got much for growth on it because it, it was just the moisture wasn't there. Okay. And what is your, uh, growing season, like the dates of it in your area of South Dakota? Oh, usually corn's going in about the 25th of April to the 15th of May. And then we're taking that corn back off about September 1st to the 20th. To give everyone a little background, um, Cover Crop Strategies wrote an article last year about two dairy farmers from Ohio who used a manure drag line to terminate cover crops. Um, the drag line acted like a roller crimper and somewhat flattened the rye. So I posted to a couple of Facebook groups asking if anyone else had done this. And that's how I found you, Scott. So can you tell us about your experience with using the drag line to terminate your cover crops? So our drag line we're using has eight inch Dietrich sweeps on it. So it's more of it's not doing any sort of crimping. And I guess what, from my experience, our drag line keeps our rye kind of in check. It keeps it from really getting too much growth, especially in the spring. It just kind of res re resists or it slows down that growth so that that rye doesn't get quite as big. It's easier to kill chemically afterwards, but, it, with with what our setup is, we would not be able to kill the rye with our setup. And with our growing season, um, typically we're going in, if, if we're in the fall, it's anywhere from, you know, maybe a week behind planting the rye. At most, we're going to have, you know, in the years that we've been doing it, the last three, four years with the rye, the way we've been doing it, at most, we're going to have four to six inches of growth there. If we come back in the spring, you're looking at maybe, depending on the field, depending on the conditions, um, you know, we're out pretty early in the spring, really much, really basically as soon as the ground thaws, we're out trying to knife in manure and so you're looking at rye that's probably four to eight inches and so what i've like i said what i've noticed is in the fields where we don't pump manure we struggle or we we get concerned because that rye starts to really get pretty big um you know that 10 to 12 inches in spots depending on you know, the field, the, the moisture, the temperature, all that stuff plays into the growth of the rye. But I mean, we do get concerned that we're getting into that, that, that higher vegetative growth to where it's hard to kill, but we're not anywhere as close to that rye starting to head out. Like for, in our operation, it just seems like the fields where we're pumping manure on, I don't know if it's the, the massive influx of nutrients or if it's the salt content of the manure or, or what exactly it is, but it just definitely seems to inhibit that rye's growth and kind of slow it down, which 
our main goal for putting in the rye in the first place is to get something established in that soil to protect that soil after we've taken the corn silage off you know the i guess the additional benefits are the that is like 100% the main goal but i would say that you know secondary goals would be to obviously tie up some some uh, free nitrogen if it's there tie up any sort of nutrients that we are at risk of leaching out um and then obviously you know helping with build some soil structure and so getting that four to six inch rye seems to accomplish those goals it's just a matter of because we're a corn on corn system trying to keep it from getting too big and too far away to where we have trouble killing it is is the issue and so is it the those dietrich sweeps that's what's term or not terminating but injuring the rye as they go through or is it the fact that you're applying the manure that's uh slowing it down i think it's the fact that it's applying the manure i mean it will where the sweeps are running it'll it'll take out maybe a two or three inch wide swath there i mean we're we're eight inch sweeps on 20 inch centers so it's i mean there's not enough sweep there to actually truly kill the whole swath of the rye and that and that's right wrong or otherwise that that would defeat the purpose if we turn the field black with our sweeps so um, they're just kind of lifting lifting that soil creating a small pocket down there you know four to six inches below the surface and spitting that manure in there like you say just could be as simple as maybe the hose dragging across as you know but it seems to be pretty even across the field where it slows the it just slows the growth down so and it's to some extent i I guess in these dry falls it's kind of surprising to me that it slows the growth down because you would think that if you're dry and you add all that moisture from that liquid manure that that rye would kind of take off with that bump of fertility and that bump of of moisture there but it, it it really doesn't seem to it kind of holds it like I said, it, it kind of puts it into almost like it goes dormant for a little bit, has to kind of process all that salt, process all that fertilizer or that fertility that's just been introduced to it, and then it starts to grow again. So that's really interesting. Um, so, and like I say, it, it doesn't seem to matter. It doesn't seem to matter, obviously, if we inject in the fall call it the damage in the fall. If we inject in the spring, we see the damage in the spring. But really when you look at those fields side by side, come, you know, 10 days in the spring after it's been injected, those fields will be pretty comparable. So, I mean, it it just, it doesn't seem to really hurt it more one way or the other. What we've seen, I guess, is if you're in there before that rye is probably, I'm going to call it two inches then it really seems to affect it. It really, that rye might, might not ever, you know, we're on seven and a half inch rows. And if you go in before it's, you know, two inches tall, it might not ever canopy those rows. You know, it'll still grow, but it might not ever canopy those rows. So it really messes it up if you're in there too early. But 
in our situation, 100, 120 million gallons of manure to pump. So once, once they're ready to start knifing, they go where they can. So, um, you know, we, we've tried to plan, we try to plan and we try to kind of lay things out as best as can to get that rye in there and get it seeded early. So it gets some growth before the manure guys are coming after it, but it just doesn't, sometimes it doesn't happen. So. Yeah. I was going to ask you that, like how you go about planning. So you're getting the timing as close to perfect as possible. Well, like you said, this, this year we ran, um, a no-till, a 30 foot Great Plains no-till drill and we ran a case 40 foot air seeder. And that was, that was an investment we made this summer is that air seeder just to have more capacity, you know, instead of, um, on our, on our no-till drill, we're filling probably every 50, 60 acres. Um, on the air seeder, we can go for sure a day when we're just putting in cover crop and just not have to fill, just get out there and run. And so we've done what we're, our goal is and what we've been really focused on here the last two years is that when the silage cutters are going to the field that we've got the drill and now with the air seeder that we've got both of those units hooked up ready to go that uh you know we've got seed on hand and then if there's a guy available while we're chopping we're getting somebody out in those units as soon as we get fields cut uh to get that seed in the ground as early as possible. Cause like I said, this year, you know, we caught two little rains while we were cutting silage and the fields that were planted ahead of those rains had probably double the growth of the stuff that was planted a week later and didn't get the rain. So, I mean, in our area, especially with the way that the last two, three years is dry as we've been, that is just, if you don't have the seed out there, it can't absorb the moisture. Um, you know, if, if it's sitting in the bag, even if you get the moisture, by the time you get it in the ground, it, the moisture may be gone. So, I mean, for us, that's the big thing is as far as timing is just doing a better job of planning, do a better job of making sure that everything's ready to go before we start chopping silage. Because once we're into, into silage, trying to get equipment ready, trying to get equipment hooked up just becomes almost nearly impossible. So there's always something else broke down or if your field's too far away and need extra truck drivers or whatever, it's a lot easier that if it's all hooked up, ready to go, you might be able to sneak somebody out of a truck to go plant for two, three hours. But if you've got to get everything ready to go, it, it ain't gonna happen, so. That's it for this episode of the Cover Crop Strategies Podcast. Thanks to Dean Sponheim, Jeff Gaska, Scott Healy, and all of our great podcast guests who were featured last year. The full transcript of this episode, as well as the full-length episodes of the podcast, are available at CoverCropStrategies.com slash podcasts. Many thanks to our sponsor, Montag Manufacturing, for helping to make this Cover Crop Podcast series possible. And from all of us here at Cover Crop Strategies, I'm McCain Vogel, Thanks for listening and have a great day.